Welcome to Lakeville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Lakeville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Lakeville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. This episode is also brought to you by Brave, the new web browser by the inventor of JavaScript. When was the last time you seriously thought about your browser? Many of us downloaded Chrome without even thinking about it, but it's time to upgrade to something way faster, totally private, that actually pays you for browsing. That's why Brave is the new browser that everyone is switching to. Brave is three times faster than Chrome because it takes Chrome's engine and rips out all of Google's spyware while blocking ads and trackers right out of the box. YouTube ads too. So it works just like Chrome, except it's lighter and faster. Here's the cool part. If you choose to enable ads that you control, Brave actually pays you for any ad that you happen to see. You can then take your earnings and cash them out, tip them to your favorite websites and creators, or redeem rewards. It's like Air Miles, but just for browsing the web as you usually do. No other browser does this, and no other browser pays you. And no, Brave doesn't collect your data and sell it. It keeps everything local to your device. Brave is still a bit of an industry secret among lead tech users and privacy advocates, despite growing to over 22 million users in a very short period of time. You can be ahead of the curve, too. It's still early. Switching to Brave is super easy and quick. It lets you import your bookmarks, history, and replicate your entire workspace in less than 60 seconds. It's free, and all your Chrome extensions work in Brave, too. So listeners of the podcast, switch to Brave today. You can go to brave.com slash likeville and switch now. By downloading and using Brave, you're also helping support the Likeville podcast. Brave is available for your laptop, iOS, and Android. It's time to upgrade to the next generation of browsers with Brave. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likevillepodcast.com. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Welcome to the Likeville podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today, we're going to be talking again with my old friend, horticulturalist Alex Finetti about a fantastic new book that um, he recommended to me and we read. It's called The Fate of Food and it is just absolutely great. So welcome again, Alex. Hey, John, how you doing? I'm doing very well. So this book, uh, you know, if if I had just read this book cold, I think, um, or if I'd read it, let's say like 20 years ago, I think I would have been really resistant to it because uh, like you, uh, you know, we, we both grew up with kind of like hippie parents and stuff like that. And with that came this whole ideology about that organic food and how you know, industrial agriculture is this big, you know, bête noire and it's like this monster and it's poisoning us all and it's poisoning the earth and we all need to get back to, you know, small farms. And this was central to the back to the land movement, to to all of these things. But then, you know, recently, I guess, uh, I don't know, last decade especially, uh, you and I have both, you know, through Charles C. Mann and other people, we've uh, learned a great deal about how actually industrial agriculture has uh, 
has done you know, a lot of great things. So I think a good place maybe for us to start our discussion is with um, this fantastic passage from uh, the introduction of the fate of food, where she says that uh, before we consider the extent of the current threats to our food supply, um, and in particular, the perils of modern farming, let's quickly review some of the achievements of industrial agriculture. As many as 2 billion people might not exist. 2 billion people might not exist if it hadn't been for the advent of agribusiness. Farms globally produce um, 17% more calories per person than they did in 1990. And while some 800 million people still suffer from chronic hunger, that is almost 200 million fewer than there were 30 years ago. Meanwhile, prices have fallen. The average household in the 1950s spent about 30% of its budget on food. Today, we spend about 13%, a financial advantage for low and middle income households, and a boon for economies worldwide. Uh, processed foods have also liberated men, and in particular women, from the drudgery of preparing every meal from scratch. Uh, yet the disadvantages of abundant, low-cost food are well-documented, uh, starting with massive waste, overconsumption, you know, as she goes on. So I think it's, it's uh, yeah, and we saw this with that wonderful book, uh, The Wizard and the Prophet, by Charles C. Mann, where he says, you know, um, if it wasn't for these these discoveries about how to, like, drastically in, increase yields, um, we would have massive amounts of starvation, right? And, which is what we had for, you know, intermittently for the last 10,000 years. So, yeah, I, I just think that's a, a good place for us to start. Yeah, no, we've we've actually been um, oddly um, sort of recommending one another uh, books for the last, um, I don't know, eight, nine months that have to do with uh, food yeah. <laughs> and yeah. uh, food and nature and natural systems and all this kind of stuff. So um, very fitting. I actually, um, I like this book um, just because it sort of touched a lot of different um aspects of um of uh, food growing food where it comes from you know how we consume it um where things are going in the future which was you know very interesting and mm-hmm. um you know it doesn't i guess address a lot of the issues you know you're talking about the issues there which uh, uh you you know i think you're making reference to the uh, wizard and the prophet book where you know, the, the, sort of the green uh, revolution and, um, you know, Norman Borlaug um, basically, you know, helping to cram more uh, calories per acre and to, you know, selling selling seed and selling fertilizer, which has been fantastic and sustaining maybe an extra 2 billion people, but which now is sort of a double-edged sword um you know uh, people are starting to see more and more is is sort of a a large component to the desertification of um agricultural land and um somehow you know in part contributing to 
climate change, you know, which is a big, 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 you know, climate change is like, you know, one of the biggest challenges of our, um, I guess, of this era. So, so what what are some of the sort of ideas in her book, uh, the the fate of food? What are some ideas that you thought uh, were really sort of promising and exciting, and and were there kind of parts of the book? Because I found like there was some things that were really exciting, but then I also had a number of points in the book where I I felt like sort of. I don't know, pissed off or sad, like stuff, like illusions that I had about potential solutions. She sort of cock blocks them and she's like, no, that's not going to work. Yeah. I don't know about the solutions per se, because I didn't feel like I got a lot of, um, I don't feel like this book provided a lot of solutions um, unless I was sort of reading it wrong. I think it was, what it was doing more uh, is kind of like, laying out all of all of the ways that um that in the future we're going to need to cultivate food to sort of survive as a species right so and just pointing in all the different directions you know um uh, we have to we do have to continue down the uh, agricultural big ag big ag basically where you have like fields but um there's a lot of uh, uh, potentially technological change, potentially very, very um, good technological changes, you know, that'll make it um, more efficient, better for the environment. You know, the, the whole digital agriculture um, aspect where they were, you know, there's that whole chapter on the lettuce bot, you know, and uh, <laughs> and sensors in the soil and all that kind of stuff. You know, why don't you just tell our, tell our listeners about that? Because it's just complete. Everybody have told that little story to her has just been like holy shit uh the lettuce bot yeah just yeah. explain that to our listeners yeah well you know i i'm trying to to recall exactly um it, i think it has to do that so it's it's sort of a path down precision agriculture where yeah. instead of uh, applying let's say fertilizer, um, you know, on, so, so the ultimate goal here in, in the lettuce, you know, the lettuce bot is basically a um, sort of a a plant by plant um, therapy almost, you know, where as the, this, I guess this robot goes through the field, it looks at the plants and if it sees that the plant needs fertilizer, it squirts fertilizer on it. If it sees that there's weeds around the plants, it it weeds, uh, it pulls out, uh, or it it actually injects um, a very specific, um, I get a herbicide on on the weed, so it doesn't like go into the soil in general. Uh, it'll thin the plants. It'll do you know. It'll basically do. It'll basically manage an entire field of uh, of produce the way that you know I manage my you know very small backyard garden, right? It'll, and this is not how big ag is done. Big ag is, you know, they basically have planes swoop down and like you know spray spray stuff on the entire field, you know. Um, and this is um, so. This is actually very. This is very cool and very exciting because. Now you can, you know, drive 
tractor through a field and basically have uh, robots that take pictures, you know, in, in real time of, um, of plants and, and that either give them the, uh, their necessary uh, fertilizer and thin them. And it's, you know, it's just the whole idea is very cool. So, well, it's, I mean, basically, I, I'm just looking at it right now, but he, sort of this has always been the problem with organic farming and gardening is that it's incredibly labor intensive, right? So I, I know this guy that, uh, that I've, that we've had on the podcast a number of times, he's an economist and he's kind of a mission disturber. He decided one year, uh, cause his wife is really into, um, into organic gardening and stuff like that. And she's, really into it she's always saying that oh this is like really good it's going to save us money and it's super healthy and so he he basically i mean he's such a shitter he sort of he paid attention to all of the expenses that went into this big organic garden that they have like all of the uh everything right then he sort of um he calculated the amount of time that uh, he was putting into it and she was putting into it and he monitored that. And then he sort of calculated, uh, you know, what they were worth based on their education and things like that. And so and he came up with like an estimate of what their hourly rate should be. And, uh, and in all these, anyway, all these different things. And then at the end of like a, a year period, he came to the conclusion that uh, even if they went to the most expensive Whole Foods place near their near their home in Washington D.C., even if they went to the most expensive place um, and bought like boutique organic like food, it would be consistently about a third the price of what it cost them to do it themselves in their backyard. Like he 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 posted these pictures of like tomatoes, and he's like. This tomato cost me twelve dollars. <laughs> like, and this cucumber cost me like. So the the problem has always been uh, with, or at least one of the problems with organic uh, farming and gardening has always been that it's incredibly labor intensive to sort of have people go through the rows and pick out all of the caterpillars from the cabbage white butterflies and to pick off the aphids and to individually weed and stuff like that. It's much easier if you can just, like you said, go over with an airplane and you know douse the whole thing in insecticide and kill off all the bugs and douse it in herbicides and kill off all the weeds. Uh, it scales really well. Right. So, yeah. Um, so, so but, you, but, you, it, but the amazing, but the amazing thing in this book is she says that uh, artificial intelligence and, and robots, they can actually potentially solve this problem because you could have, rather than having to have like a person go up and down the rows and weed, you could have this little like C3PO like robot. It goes, you know, along the rows and basically weeds and yeah. you know takes care of each of right so it could it could actually make organic farming scale yes yes uh so 
this is true. It uh, it can make uh, organic uh, farming scale. I think uh, your economist friend, uh, those calculations are very disingenuous. <laughs> Although Why? quite funny. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think if you... So, okay. So the first thing is, if you have your own garden, okay, and, and you enjoy growing your own food, um, and you're not doing it just for survival's sake, you know, to use the amount of money that you make as a professional and then to use that as like a sort of a, you know, a, a, a meter a stick to calculate, you know, how much your produce that you're going to grow yourself costs is, um, you know, it's almost like saying, you know, the, the counting the time that you give to the local um, football you know, little league football and say, well, you know, I earn a hundred dollars an hour and, you know, I give 10 hours a week to these kids and, you know, like it's not worth it. None of them are going to be professional players. So my investment is going, you know what I mean? Like at, at some point, if somebody loves the garden, you know, and wants to do it. And, and of, of course this comes from me. I love the garden. So, um, you know, maybe my tomatoes cost ten dollars each. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But well, the, I didn't. So, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't specify this, but yeah. Um, his his wife raised exactly that objection you just said. Yeah. Uh, said and and he said, okay, fine. He goes, I will recalculate everything, and I will I will calculate our hourly rates um, based on what uh, illegal farm workers get. Yeah. In, but again, um, this is the problem the with economists. This, this is the problem with economists. Like it's calculating. Again, everything comes down to the to, to cost. Um, and um, it's you know, there's so much more involved here. And I know I understand it's always going to be on a small scale, it's always going to cost more. Okay, for sure. Um, but there needs, I think farming, there needs to be the whole model needs to be put on its head, okay? And um, I think it's starting in, there's some people, uh, I think in Europe and Italy, uh, more specifically, that are, uh, that are starting to pay uh, farmers for different things other than um, uh, yield. Because the, the sort of the, I guess, the, the Western way or the American way, you know, big ag, it's all about farmers are paid on on yield right they're not uh, farmers are not paid on soil health uh, they're not paid on uh, sequestering uh, carbon um, they're not paid on the quality of their food right whether there's it's high in nutrients or you know uh, it's high in protein or whether it's like you're actually getting something good um, and it's it's a it's a purely and strictly you know, I have X bushels of X product and I get X price for it. And, and I think that uh, whole model needs to be thrown in its head because, because farming and agriculture, uh, you know, I don't come from this background. Um, I, you know, I've, it's only been about um, six, seven years that I've been involved in this kind of, uh, uh, in this world. Um, and, and, and I'm realizing that there are so many things that tie in to, uh, to growing food, you know, like we were, I was saying before climate change, um, you know, overall soil health, that is desertification of, 
uh, of farmlands, um, the use of water, right? The overall, um, so these are all resources that are so important on so many different levels to just life on this planet. And, and farming, the way we farm is, um, it's just making it, um, it's a compounding a lot of these problems. So, yeah. you know, so just to give you an example, so about that uh, being paid on, on, on nutrition, let's say, right? So there's, there's um, I, don't, I don't know the company. Look, I, I, I read and I, I look at so many things um, on, these, uh, on these subjects, but there's a, there's a company in Italy that has started paying their um, their farmers more money for uh, wheat that is higher in the, in protein content, so that they can actually make noodles that are more nutritious that are higher in protein, right? Um, but to do this, the yield goes. You know, I I'm, I I don't know the specifics. I'm not going to get into it. But to do this, the yields go way down, right? Um, but the nutrient content goes way up right wow and and now you're like so now you're actually paying a premium on uh on quality okay you're not paying because you're not paying a premium you're not paying for yield now you're paying for quality right there's a now there's also another company in the uh, in the united states which is trying to oh i uh, remember i remember reading about this this was uh uh what is it like um Grano Armando or something like that, or Singetta. It was like they said it would um, it would give like the the protein content of their wheat would be something like fourteen percent, and like the normal average is like twelve percent. I remember reading. Yeah, yeah, it's it's like this crazy. I didn't know that the Italian government was subsidizing it. Well, I don't know if the Italian government is subsidizing it. This is actually a market-based thing where people, you know, the, the companies, no, it hasn't do with the government. It's happening in Italy. It's not because of the government. I think it's just because of that's where the, this is starting. Um, mm-hmm. But it has to do with the consumer wanting a product which is of better quality, right? And then, yeah. and then, and then you have the entire, uh, right now, there are some uh, companies in the United States that are, working very, very hard to try and get the government involved in programs um, that, uh, to increase soil health in agriculture. Because all of these years, so the Green Revolution and all this great stuff you know, that has made us um, be able to support an extra 2 billion people on the planet, which is, all, which is great. I'm not, don't get me wrong, it's all great. Um, has been super fertilizer intensive, right? And... Mm-hmm. And fertilizers are just terrible. They're just like, they're kind of terrible for the soil and for soil health. And um, that's one thing. And another thing is the way um, the soil is managed. Um, You know, you, you kind of always, like we know now that you always need to have something growing in the soil, you know, for the soil to be healthy, for all the soil microorganisms to, you know, stay alive and, um, you know, to to help just plant life in general, and um, so there's there's organizations that are actually working on what they call carbon credits, 
where they would pay farmers to keep, uh, let's say, uh, cover crops or to keep like green stuff on top of the soil, right? Um, and uh, they would pay them to do things that sequester carbon in, in the soil. Um, and uh, so they're not being paid on the yield of the, of the actual um, uh, crop that they're selling to eat. They're actually being paid to um, keep the farmland healthy. Because mm-hmm. because this is this is like the number one challenge I think in agriculture right now is that we're at this this point where you know all of this uh, really nice um, increase in in food is keeping us alive, but we're at a, we're at sort of a, at a tipping point where continuing to do this is just going to you know ultimately lead down a very you know, a very bad path, you know? Yeah. And definitely, I think this is, you know, when it comes to food and agriculture, I think this is a, a really perfect example of, you know, what they call in economics, like market failure. Like this is a perfect example of a situation where if, if you're going to be like a hardcore market fundamentalist and say, Oh, markets can fix everything. Like this is a situation where markets no, clearly, yeah. clearly on on a number like okay. One example that she gives that I find is just fantastic is um, where she said, you know, relying on markets. What that has meant in a lot of first world countries, it's definitely the case here in Canada that we have all of this fantastic agricultural land that that you know is really rich and could be super super productive. And it is basically not being used. And it's not being used because um, the price of labor is too much. Right? So yeah. instead, so rather than growing something that you could grow in, let's say, BC or Nova Scotia or Ontario, uh, and you could grow it really, really well here in Canada, and then when it was ready, you could just um, very easily take it in a truck to main kind of distribution centers in Toronto, uh, Vancouver, Montreal, stuff like that. So you could do that without burning a lot of um, fossil fuels and things like that. Instead, they will grow that that plant uh, somewhere in like, you know, Mexico or, or Chile or Argentina or China where it's cheaper. Yeah. And then we'll... Um, because the labor is cheaper and then ship it all the way to market here. So it ends up like um, losing a lot of nutrients and freshness along the way. And it ends up, it ends up like burning tons and tons of fossil fuels and all of this, you know, and often it's grown in a place where it's like much more water intensive and much more kind of difficult to produce it in that place. And the whole reason that it's being grown in that place is because the labor is dirt cheap. When yeah. if, if they would just, if the government would just sort of say, okay, let's like be rational here. Like it makes much more sense if we have like, I remember, I can't remember if it was you or if it was Paul Bodie who was, I know it was Paul Bodie. He was showing me this like map 
of the Montreal area and then all the way down uh, in south- southwestern Quebec down to like Lacole and the border and stuff like that. And I just couldn't believe it. He's saying all of this land, uh, he's showing me like different, like it was a very detailed map. And he said, there is so much quality agricultural land in the Montreal area that it is just not being used. And he goes, it's just, it's a scandal. Like we could, yeah. be, we could be producing um, a lot of our food supply yeah. really locally, really locally. And yet, you know, rather than like growing it here, we ship it in from other places just because of just market for the cost. forces, market yeah. forces. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and there's there's also like there's a lot of farmland around here, um, corn, you know, a lot of corn, feeding livestock, you know, um, and um, and again the farms the farms they just get bigger and bigger and they're just you know for for a farmer to go into business again it's uh, I guess it's it's how we treat the food production uh, system we treat it as a business like you know so many things. Um, and then, you know, you go into farming and then you want to start making some money and then you realize that, well, if you want to make money, you need like a bigger farm, you know, because the costs, um, you know, you mentioned it right at the beginning, you know, 30% of the 1950s salary went to food. Now it's like, you know, 13, 17%, whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, well, the only way that this can happen is by, you know, reducing the cost of food and, so there's like this this uh, eternal squeeze, you know, that's happening. Which um, and and the whole squeeze in general, I think, is it's not to the, to everyone's uh, benefit. You know, at the end, we have you know food systems that are much more fragile, and um, you know uh, where people are growing the same crop in in very large areas instead of having like more di- uh, diverse crops. And um, yeah, I, I I lost my train of thought there, but um, it's yeah, um, no, it's, it's just it's a whole shift like market failure, right? Like, the, yeah, how do we how do we um, sort of deal with the food problem? Because I mean, to take a, a sort of an extreme example, yeah. there are all these horror stories from the third world. One of them that I remember very clearly is. Um, some of the most fertile land in all of, in all of Africa is, is basically in Rwanda and Burundi, right? It's just this incredibly rich, fertile soil. Um, it has a good mix of everything. It, uh, they get great water, good drainage. It's, it's just, you can, it's one of those places like California where you can throw practically anything in the ground. And it grows and it, it looks great. You know, it's just a great place. So um, it used to be that most of the countries in that region of Africa, they, um, they produced a great deal of food. They were able to feed themselves uh, many times over. And so it was one of these places in Africa that had um, very rarely had any problems with like drought or hunger or something like that. So, but then they wanted to develop because everybody wants to develop. And so the IMF and the world bank came in and they said, and they had their economists and most of them were hardcore market fundamentalists. And they said, uh, all right, um, 
you right now, uh, your country is really inefficient. You are, you know, growing all of this like vegetables and fruits and grains and stuff like that. Well, you know, on the world market, you can buy that stuff from other countries and get it at a much cheaper cost. Like it's inefficient for you to be growing that. You have, you have perfect land to grow coffee. Um, and coffee is like a really, really highly prized crop and you can make a lot of money for it. And so they said, we will give you these big loans to build schools and bridges and to uh, hydroelectric dams so that you can modernize your society and your economy. But uh, we've got some strings attached. And one of them is we want you to transfer, like, I can't remember what it was. It was like some big percentage of your arable land. We want you to be switching that over to coffee production. Yeah. And so they basically, they just, you know, they needed the money. They kind of sort of have a gun into their head. Yeah, uh, And so they basically said, okay, fine. So they switched to coffee production and they stopped, um, they stopped sort of feeding themselves from within their own nation. They started importing like a huge percentage of their food. And you know what? It went really, really well for a little while. Like coffee prices were really high. They were producing very high quality coffee. They were selling it on the world market. People were becoming millionaires. Uh, farmers were getting paid. It was awesome. It was like it was like fucking Christmas for a little while. But yeah. then the shit, then the shit hit the fan because then what happened is so many different countries were getting yeah, they, in on the on the coffee game. Yeah, they've the, done the, the same thing with of, all all everything. Yeah, oranges, no, exactly. bananas. So, you know, you but, but here's, you know, avocados. But here's, uh, yeah, but here's the problem, and this is the thing that economists never want to. The point that they never want to concede to me. Yeah. is that um, then the the price of co- coffee collapsed. And so now suddenly um, they had all of this coffee crop and nobody wanted to buy it at the price that they were selling it. So they had to slash their prices and slash the prices. Well, every time they did that, they're getting less and less money, but they yeah. still need to buy um, food to feed their population in yeah. Um, yeah in like with international currencies. So they suddenly came into a very vulnerable situation where they are having to sort of pay more and more money for, you know, for rice and, and wheat and potatoes. It's, and, it's the exact yeah. same phenomena, John, as everything that's happened in the last uh, 30 years in, in middle America, where you had like big corporations that would like, I don't know, make steel in a city so they'd go in and be like a steel city and everyone was great as long as steel was good but then when the chinese started to make cheaper steel and then you know then the prices of steel had to go down until they were so low that uh, they had to close down close shop and then you have ghost towns right um it's literally doing the same thing to entire countries on agriculture but I want to. I want to go on another uh, point. I want to go back to uh, the uh, the diversity and large monocultures. So, the I guess the sustain the financial sustainability is in larger um, 
larger agriculture and to feed like masses of people, you still need fields of, you know, corn and wheat and all that stuff. But the, uh, the future is actually in diversity of um, diversity of food types and varieties and cultivars. Um, and um, because, especially because of climate change, Okay, and I know in the book at one point I think she talks about the whole uh, cherry uh, cherry tree um, mm-hmm. uh, situation in the Midwest, where basically what's happening is it's uh, getting because of the wonkier weather, you know, it gets warmer faster, and then you know the, the trees basically start to um, uh, the, the 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 buds start coming out, and then they get mm-hmm. frosts. And then they get frosts and all the, you know, um, and then it just basically kills all the buds. And then there's no, is it, is it cherries or was it peaches? Yeah. Peaches. Yeah. She talked about peaches, um, but it, it's basically the same for any crop, especially if you have, you know, these perennial, these trees, right? Like apples, cherries, you know, pears, peaches. Now, if you're like in an area let's say in the Midwest and you plant all these trees that are, you know, good for, let's say zone four a or whatever, or zone, you know, six or whatever the zone is. But then all of a sudden, because of climate change, your zone changes, right? So now it's either getting uh, uh, warmer sooner or the weather is a bit wonkier and you have like frosts at weird dates and, well, then basically what ends up happening is all of these huge monocultures that you have, uh, in one full sweep, they can just all be decimated, right? And yeah. as, as the years go, the years start counting down, then you start having um, you start having the problem of, okay, well, you know, we were able to grow these, you know, these peaches or these apples here for the last 50 years, and my granddad and my dad and me we've been growing apples here but all of a sudden now these apples we can't grow them here anymore right um yeah. and and the only just just to clar- just to clarify for our listeners um yeah because this is a really kind of important point so yeah. what what alex is talking about here is like um the if you have like you know trees whether it's apple trees or peach trees or pear trees or whatever they they f- in the springtime of course they flower and then those flowers get uh, fertilized, you know, some of them, and they, they turn into into fruit, into like apples and peaches and stuff. So, but what happens with cl- what's been happening with climate change is you get this like freaky warm day in February or March or something like that, and it's like really hot for a day or two, and so the trees get tricked and they all flower. And then, of course, it goes back to being winter because it is fucking winter. And then yeah. it, uh, all the buds and the flowers like just freeze and fall down. And yeah. then it, you know, when there spring actually, there goes your crop for the entire year. Yeah, there goes your crop. And so, so the, and, and, you know, we're talking about trees, but this is basically, it's exactly the same for all crops, right? And all crops basically um, have, uh, I guess a, a type of weather that they like and and or don't like. They like it dry. They like it, you know, long season, short season, whatever it is, right? The cold, what what have you? And um, so, the only way to uh, to continually have 
uh, food crops that are um, uh, that are sustainable, you know, is to have a lot of diversity and and to keep bringing new varieties and new cultivars and to keep having people like. If we look back at the book, The Wizard and the Prophet, you know, where Borlaug spent basically years trying to figure out, you know, the most drought resistant, uh, uh, was it corn or wheat or, you know, in uh, the most drought resistant corn in uh, for the Midwest, you know, mm-hmm. and basically using, you know, thousands of different cultivars and, and sort of um, crossing them, right, to finally come mm-hmm. to one come to one that like is gives a good yield tastes okay can withstand you know um well uh the only way that this can that you can continue to do this is to have diversity right Mm -hmm. and the and the diversity in seeds okay is um it's not the diversity is not coming from uh, big farms, right? Diversity is coming from small farms, from local gardens. It's coming from like, you know, people that have, that love a certain kind of plant and that like save the seeds and that change them. You know what I mean? So there's, mm-hmm. at, at some point, big, big, these big, big problems, the only way that they'll be able to be um, uh, addressed is through a lot of uh, small uh, uh, very localized diversity of uh, of seed and cultivars. Yeah, well, I mean, if you look at if you look at the amazing, I mean, it's just it's kind of like fucking astounding, considering the fact that they didn't have um, any of the benefits of modern technology that we have now. But if you look at the amazing advances that were made in farming communities in uh, northern Italy, in southern France, in um, England, they kind of sucked. But like in New England, in the United States, um, there's a couple of these like zones where you can see how in just, in just a kind of a 200-year period, they developed all sorts of amazing varieties of different kinds of uh, plants and livestock and things like that. And how did they do it? It was individual farmers yeah. who would who would just sort of tinker and try things out and experiment. And then every year you would have this uh, this amazing sort of annual ritual, which people sometimes make fun of and don't realize. You know, wh- when I see a farmer's market. Yeah, I I see a meeting of a bunch of Nobel Prize winning scientists who are trying to. <laughs> no, think about it's it. Like, I know, I know yeah. you're laughing, but think about it for a second. No, no, Follow I my logic. When, when, when they're I bringing, see it, they're bringing all of their book. best stuff. They're yeah. they're looking at each other's varieties of. Oh, this is a pig that I've, you know, a particular breed of pig that I've come up with, and look at how beautiful it is, and how big it is, and how tasty it is, and like. Here's a tomato that I can variety. Here's a pumpkin variety. And then they get a prize. But then do you know what came with that was you would get a prize. You'd get a big attaboy from like all of your people in your community. But then you would like tell them, share your seeds and you would tell them how to grow this thing. Yeah. Yeah. And think about what happens when you do that for a couple of generations Yeah, with all of these brilliant primates. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and, and there's, you learn a lot of shit. 
Yeah, the cool thing about seed too is that you know you get this epigenetic phenomenon where um, when you save seed from a very specific geographical area over time, that seed, um, you know, the temperature and the climate sort of imprints itself on the plant, and then when it seeds, you know, the following year the ones that are better uh, are more adapted. So you know, if you're growing local uh, produce and you're using local seed, right? You probably end up having, you know, a food that um, that is healthier, that grows better, that gets, you know, bigger yields, that you know, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, can I can I just uh, switch on you here for a sec? Yeah, because, yeah, yeah. Switch away because there's a few things in this book um, that I I just don't want us to uh, uh, pass by because they're so sort of science fictiony and cool that uh, <laughs> <laughs> that I think we need to talk about. So the um, the lab-grown meats. Um, what is your thought on that? Because that part, that chapter in the book, where they were talking about basically, you know, taking a little bit of uh, Betsy the the cow's hip, or you know, and throwing it in a petri dish, and then growing a, sort of a steak. Uh, <laughs> okay, well, I'm gonna I, I, I'm gonna start off by just saying uh, I'm, I'm gonna read for our listeners because it's it gives you a a sense of what of what a fun you know interesting um, book this is and the author one of the things that's so charming and endearing about the author is that unlike a lot of books on on food like this. She's not this like super moralistic person who, you know, like a Facebook vegan, you know, who's like preaching at you and like wagging their finger. And like, uh, she, she sort of, she talks about uh, her own kind of frailty and her own inability to, to stick to her principles and stuff like that. And it's, but anyway, here's the, the opening uh, passage in the chapter that Alex is referring to. Uh, she says, uh, Meat is the old sweetheart I can't quit. Having taken to heart the case against it and the lessons of the previous chapters, I know it's a toxic entanglement. I've tried several times to phase meat out of my diet completely, just as I've phased out sugar, coffee, and alcohol for long periods, mostly without missing them. But with this particular vice, I'm weak-willed. And living as I do in Nashville, home of barbecue and hot chicken, I'm a shark in chummed waters. I keep circling for more and also for justification for why it's so hard for me to give it up, trying to uncover a way uh, to keep some meat protein in my diet without hastening my own and the planet's demise. And so she uh, she goes into all that. But, but in that chapter, um, yeah, she eventually talks about how um, there's, you know, we have not just like these things like beyond meat and you know which uh which are based completely on plant stuff but they taste just like a hamburger or, or close enough to a hamburger that people find it satisfying but she yeah. says we can actually get to uh we will in the near future be able to have a steak that did not involve you know growing a cow a, yeah, you're just taking cells. That's right. You're just so so th- that whole chapter 
was so it brought up a whole pile of like i guess ethical questions and um because basically what she's saying or what you know what they're doing is um they're taking i guess meat cells you know tissue from an animal that's still alive it's still running around um and they're putting it in a petri dish and they're growing it to a piece of meat that you can eat and i think um if i if i get the numbers correctly when they they grew their first ounce or their first yeah when they grew their first ounce of meat it was like a million dollars an ounce right or something like mm-hmm. that yeah. and then you know now they've been doing it for a few years i think they're down to what uh you know five six thousand dollars an ounce or something uh so it's still kind of out of my price range <laughs> mm-hmm. but uh, but um but that at some point um this sort of lab grown meat um is actually going to be um cost effective enough for it to be produced and sold um which kind of throws a real big monkey wrench in the entire vegan movement you know <laughs> but, <laughs> but but, but uh, because you know you there's, no there's nothing cruelty. suffering nothing there's suffering. nothing suffering there's no there's no sentience it's no. just they they take like some no, 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 that, was just, that was a bad joke that was yeah no. <laughs> no but i i think you're you are onto something it's it it is if if your argument against um eating meat is that it causes suffering and that this was a, a living thing that was killed you know so that you could eat but this is a situation where it's it's actually it's not sentient no he was never sentient they just took no. a, they just took some cells out of like like you could, you could theoretically. I remember Each yourself. Asking, you could theoretically exactly. take a piece <laughs> of your, you know, take a piece of your buttocks out. And, yeah, you know, I want. Throw like, it in. I want like an Alex. Steak. Yeah, that's right. Like just <laughs> take a little like some cells yeah. out of it's, like your. Uh, yeah, he's got like pretty good like triceps. I'm like, I want yeah. like a little piece of that action. And yeah, then, like, it's so science fictiony. It's so science fictiony. I know. I know. It's like, um, and and I thought. You know, things like that in the book I found uh, sort of interesting, inspiring, you know, uh, hopefully. Uh, and, and the other thing, and I, I forget, but uh, meats that are grown this way, if I remember correctly, is it the meats or they were talking about the other stuff where there's much less, um, it doesn't spoil um, and there's all kinds of like advantages to it. Like it doesn't, you know, um, but uh, anyways. Yeah, no, well, it doesn't, no, absolutely, you don't, uh, you, first of all, if with the lab meats, you don't have the, uh, you don't, you you don't have the kind of the, the stress and the ethical concerns of, well, I'm like, I'm, you know, promoting industrial agriculture, which takes a huge amount of like water and yeah. resources, uh, and is like, you know, like we, we see in, here in Quebec with pig farms, right? They like, they're incredibly polluting yeah. to water, water systems and all this stuff. So in making lab meat, you, you use way less water, way lab less meat. resources, yeah. you know, way, way less resources. You don't need to have like big factory farms at all. Um, and you, 
one of the biggest problems they have with, uh, with meat is that you get contamination with all sorts of bacteria and things like that, which, which, you know, on a regular basis, yeah. people, people die from E. coli and things like yeah, that. Yeah. Whereas like with uh, these lab meats, um, you can, uh, you can, it, you can grow kind of, you know, what do they say? Like from cell to fork uh, is like sort of, Two to six weeks, rather yeah, than like yeah, than, yeah, than, than like two and a half. The life years of an animal, yeah, the life yeah. of an animal. Yeah. So it's it's like a huge cost of of energy, um, and you know savings and stuff like that, and water and all that stuff. You don't have to worry about uh, E. coli contamination. Very freaky. Very freaky. yeah, and it's uh, and you get like um, really really fantastic nutritious, and it's actually like uh, she says the the lab meats um, can be made to be significantly more nutritious than a steak. So it'll taste like, yeah, just as it'll taste just as amazing as a steak, but they can like, for instance, um, turn the saturated fats into omega three fatty acid. Um, fats so they can they can turn it into like a fat that is like way way better for your heart and so you you can bring down so you can have your big huge steak uh, which tastes amazing um (laughs) and and gives you the same benefits of having an avocado so it's you're having steak and avocado john like how lucky are you (laughs) how lucky are you so (laughs) it's just it's so it's so amazing i mean if they did this if they set this up because right now, like, uh, remember that, that book we read, uh, Yuval Noah Harari's book? Um, I think it was in Sapiens, like, where he talks about how, like, right now, um, a huge percentage of the animals that are bigger than, like, the size of a, a mouse, like, yeah. or, or like a hamster, I can't remember which. He says, like, if you basically take all of the animals that are bigger than a mouse on planet Earth right now, uh, but a huge percentage of them are um, animals that we eat. So the most the most common animal right now that's bigger than a mouse, the most common animal on planet Earth is the chicken. <laughs> like there's more chickens than there are like you know any other bird on Earth. Like there's uh, and then like he goes through all the lists. We love like, our fried chicken. <laughs> <laughs> like he goes through like chickens, pigs, uh, cows, yeah, um, you know all all this stuff, and so we, uh, and and then he goes through also like our our pets. So there's more pet dogs on planet Earth than all of the wolves and wild dogs in the world combined, many times over. <laughs> this yeah. is crazy. Like, this is a crazy thought, right? There's more domestic cats on planet Earth. Yeah, I, I'm not eating my cat. Washing. John, I'm sorry. Yeah. The, buck, the buck stops right. at Harley so, the cat. So we, okay? so I am we, not eating my cat. <laughs> so we and our our kind of pet animals and our animals that we eat um, are just leaving a massive ecological footprint. So if we could find a way to sort of stop having those massive uh, cow farms and pig farms and because yeah. we're growing it in labs this yeah. would be like a and massive win 
and fish farms. You know, that whole chapter on fish farms that she talks oh, about. God. Yeah. That, you know, I, I actually never gave much thought to fish farms before this book. It was actually not even something on my radar. Uh, you know, the whole meat thing, yes. Uh, of course, all the agricultural stuff, because, like, I'm into gardening and, and all that. And I, you know, um, but the whole fish farm um, chapter, it's sort of like, it really made me, like, think, because um, they're literally, there's entire portions of of the ocean, I guess, or in the fjord in the north where she's, she has one, the guy, I forget which guy it is. He, like, he's like the fish king of the planet. Um, they're basically using large portions of the ocean quarantined off in, I guess, through nets or through what have you, where they have like tons and tons and tons of fish and they just, you know, they have all these fish and then they, you know, then they have all the challenges of having tons and tons and tons of fish. It's almost like having tanks um, underwater that are crammed with fish, but in the ocean. And um, I, 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 right? Am I getting this? Like, am I yeah, no, absolutely. This right? Yeah, it's, it's yeah. like the guy is like Alf something, Ark, Ark Stog. Yeah, and yeah. they ha- yeah, and they have like issues because um, first of all, these like hordes of fish which is totally unnatural to have like this many fish in a specific area like millions and you know tens of millions of fish they all need to eat and they all you know need to you know shit and all this stuff and so the general ecosystems where they where they're kept are kind of like sort of getting decimated but this is happening out just you know out in the ocean it's kind of yeah well the the fish the fish farming question i i think that's just absolutely fascinating because yeah you have um this is something that's been going on for a long time i I knew about it a little bit you ever that uh girl we went to high school with rosalie yeah remember her she ended up getting yeah yeah she ended up getting into like fish farming and she was working uh she's working for canadian fisheries canada or whatever and like she was living in nova scotia for a long time and i anyway but so that, that's how i first heard about it and i was just i was kind of amazed at first that they have these you know big pools like olympic sized like pools that they just kind of grow fish <laughs> grow salmon in them you know like and you you in the ocean, them. though, there are pools in the ocean. They're like well, no, they, they, the first time I heard about it was the ones that they have on land. On land, where okay, it's, okay. Yeah, yeah, where yeah, it's yeah. like where it's like a, a big giant aquarium, <laughs> kind of like a giant like like swimming pools, just like you know, one after another, going on for like kilometers, and you feed them from the time they're like little, and then when they're big enough, you uh, kill them and sell them, like and I. I had heard about that, but yeah, they, I, I had no idea that there were these, you know, where you would basically just have like a cage and, and underwater cage, <laughs> underwater yeah. cage, like with salmon in it. Well, they need you, that. You know, I think one of the reasons they, they're talking about is that they need, you know, they need the currents, right? So the, the fish needs current so that it can just be swimming. 
right? They because they need to always be swimming, and so mm-hmm. it needs to sort of be in the ocean. It can't be like in, the, I guess, in these pools. And if you have, you know, if you want to actually have huge amounts, you imagine the cost of like digging out, you know, areas to to put these in. So you just put them right in the ocean, right? Mm-hmm. But then these are like ecological. You know, these are like ecological time bombs in the ocean, you know. Yeah, so, well, I, I, the description in that chapter about how there's this, like, kind of, what is it, this kind of lice that, like, yeah. goes on, <laughs> that goes yeah. on, like, salmon. And and essentially, over millions of years, the the lice and the salmon have reached a kind of equilibrium. And so they, um, you know, they... They both can coexist, but basically because you're putting all of these salmon together in this really close quarters, which would never happen you know, in in a natural setting, that this gives the lice a huge advantage over the salmon. And so they're actually kind of doing like way, way better <laughs> and the lice can spread like crazy and they yeah. can... Uh, cause all sorts of problems for the salmon. And then of course this huge quantity of like, I don't know, whatever they are, fish lice or fish louse, yeah. um, then can sort of get out and can mess up the wild populations of salmon. I mean, this is just totally, I, I find this kind of stuff, like, you know what this, that part reminded me of um, right now they're, they've been having this problem in um, New England, but specifically in uh, in New Hampshire, there are many people who believe that moose could be extinct in New Hampshire as early as 2022. Really? Yeah. How, and, how come? and, and uh, the reason, okay, I'm just telling you, if there's any listeners who are like, this is, you listened to this before dinner, uh, you, may it, wanna, you may want to pause it because this does is it so, have to do? Does it have to do with the fact that nobody in New Hampshire wears a helmet when they wear the motorcycle? <laughs> no, it's really <laughs> okay. gross. It's okay. really gross. It's like science fiction horror movie gross. Okay, okay. so check so check it out. Um, there are these um, these ticks that um, that sort of attach themselves to to moose, right? Oh and yeah, they've, and they've been doing this. You know, oh, it's not cold enough. Yeah, yeah, the weather. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so there's, 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 they've, they've kind of reached like a, an equilibrium. So these ticks basically get on the moose like in the springtime, and they grow, uh, they grow like all year, and they breed and stuff like that, and they spread onto the moose. But then, in the middle of the winter, when it gets like crazy, crazy cold, like minus 20 minus 25 stuff like that on those yeah. really really cold days the moose are just standing there on their super like tall legs and yeah. the ticks the ticks just all the, died well not all but the vast majority of them yeah like, yeah. like I, they have they have a massive like fucking you know holocaust tick holocaust right like yeah. lots of them it's free their, it's their yearly to, tick cleaning they tick yeah, clean exactly, during the cold exactly. yeah they uh, they basically they, they freeze to death and they fall off. Well, what's been happening because of global warming is that in these like really really strange, unseasonably warm winters, is they've had a couple of years where 
it never really gets very cold. And yeah. so all the ticks from the previous year, they survive. Yeah, and, and they, they multiply. And they multiply. And so suddenly uh, these, these park rangers and these hunters, they started finding these moose, you know, like a, it's a big animal, you know, it's a big emaciated, animal. emaciated. Uh, yeah, yeah. Just like looking like, like a, like a like, totally emaciated, looking yeah. like a, like a, you know, one of those, like a supermodel, you know, with an eating disorder, <laughs> like and just looking like super, super skinny. And yeah. they would just, they would get so, um, so skinny that they just literally would collapse from exhaustion and they would find them dead and they were trying and they were just completely freaking out when they started finding this. Uh, And they found, uh, they found dead um, calves like baby moose because the mothers were so unbelievably like meth head supermodel skinny that they couldn't (laughs) produce milk. (laughs) And so their, their babies would just like die like the pathetic little, and uh, it's just, it was absolutely horrible. And so then they, they thought it was like all different kinds of diseases and things like that. And they tested all of them and they finally found that actually what it was, was these fucking ticks. Right. So it's, it's a similar situation with the salmon where, um, the salmon and the ticks have reached a kind of equilibrium and, um, you know, but one of, I mean, this, this is the thing, right. With like climate change is it's upsetting all of these. Everything balances. is intertwined. Things are so. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and balances that have been established for a really, really long time are being thrown off. Right. And certain species are being given like a huge advantage like, you know, these ticks on the salmon and on the moose, and then other species are being uh, kind of really disadvantaged by this, right? And so it's, yeah, it's very, it's very well, freaky. It's, it's, it's like that theory, you know, we talked about that theory um, that uh, the fungus, uh, the, the, you know, we, how fungus basically um, destroyed is the reason why you know mammals took over the earth and the dinosaurs were destroyed that was completely wild isn't yeah, it crazy? was on it was yeah it was on radio Lab and they had a couple of other yeah that basically the uh this whole idea that the dinosaurs were killed by that big um you know, meteor that hit the earth or whatever the asteroid. Yeah. yeah. And he says, well, not exactly. <laughs> Actually yeah. what happened is you had a couple of years with practically no sun. And so uh, after and, so the meteor did hit, right? So 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 the thing is the meteor hits it's not the meteor that kills everybody and it kills everybody. It kills all the dinosaurs. It's that the meteor creates this like immense sort of cl- dust cloud, right? That makes the the entire temperature of of the I guess of the world go down, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. And so it's suddenly suddenly the uh, the entire Earth is extremely dark, very wet, and cool. Guess what likes things dark, wet, and cool? Yeah, uh, fungi. <laughs> Right. So suddenly, and like you remember, they talked about how, like, if you look at the fossil record, if you look at the sediments, you can actually see a 
discernible thick layer of spores from that period right after the asteroid hit. So basically the, there was the, probably the biggest um, flourishing of mushrooms and fungi in the history of our planet. Yeah. So suddenly there's all these dead animals and dead plants, uh, lots of good material for them to consume and they've got perfect conditions for their growth. It's nice, nice and dark and wet and cool. Yeah. So they just like, basically like yeah. fucking took over the earth for a couple of years until, until yeah. the sun came back. Yeah. And, and we, just and, to put, put the T on that, on that, it's, uh, it's not necessarily, so the fungus just this, it didn't take over and kill. The reason why it killed, the theory goes, the reason why they killed all of the dinosaurs is because in a regular day, right, dinosaurs, most of them being reptiles and cold-blooded, right, they get warmed up by the sun, so their body temperature goes up. The sun beats on them, body temperature goes to whatever, you know, 90, 100 degrees. And most fungus over, I think it's over 80 or 90 degrees, they don't really survive, right mm-hmm. they they die that's why you know we're kind of covered in in candida and all kinds of yeasts and you know funguses don't really get inside of us and kill us because you know fungus like it at like 70 80 degrees you know 60 70 80 they don't like it at 90 and 100 degrees right they mm-hmm. die so but if you're and and as a mammal our body is always at regulated at like you know 98 degrees right so the fungus can't attack us, but if you're if you're a um, um, uh, like a dinosaur, if you're yeah, if you're a reptile, well, you need the sun to warm you up. So if your sun never warms up your body, your body never goes above a certain temperature, then all of a sudden the uh, that's when the fungus kind of says, "Hey, you know, you you were seventy degrees last night, and now you're still seventy degrees today. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm gonna get in there and have a party." Right? Yeah. So, well, I mean, yeah, this is, you can even see this with, it's not just in terms of like repelling fungus, it's also uh, viruses and bacteria. Most, most viruses and bac- bacteria don't do very well uh, when it's hot. And that's why the, the human body, you know, has figured this out a long time ago. And that's why, like, when you, when you get, when you're under severe attack, your body responds by running a fever and it raises your, your body temperature. And and what's fascinating about running a fever is that um, if if your fever goes high enough, uh, it can actually cause brain damage. It can actually cause death, right? Like, so it's, it's literally like your, your body is like playing chicken with the infection, it's like so, so I'm, your body I'm gonna I'm gonna keep I'm gonna keep raising the temperature because yeah. uh, I'm calculating that although there's like a risk of this killing me, uh, I'm pretty sure that most of the time it's gonna kill you first. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's like uh, and, and that's like when you run a fever, basically your body is like because you know the the whole expression of like, oh, if you go outside you catch a cold. Um, people used to say, oh, that's like uh, an old wives tale, right? And you know what? It, it mostly is. You know, you don't catch a cold out being in the cold, obviously. Uh, but there is like a grain of truth to it. And the grain of truth to it is that like, 
if your throat and your nasal passages, if they get, um, if they're cold for a prolonged period of time and you already have like some sort of bacteria or viruses like that you have encountered in your environment and they're kind of on your throat or your inside your nasal capacity and you get cold, it actually creates a situation that is more favorable for them to reproduce and to spread and gain a foothold. So it's actually, like, it's not all you know, wrong. Right. But yeah. But yeah. Anyway, like it's, it is. So, I have a, so this brings me yeah. a question. So this whole like, you know, heating up of the organism to, you know, fight off pathogen. Um, so the question I have for you is, you know, in this time right now of global warming, where the planet is basically running a fever, what pathogen do you think the planet is trying to get rid of? Because <laughs> clearly if the mechanisms work for us, you know, maybe it works on a more planetary <laughs> scale too. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I, don't think, I mean, I've heard, this, I've heard this argument that Gaia is running a fever to get rid of us. Uh, have you? I but, don't know. I just, you know, I, I just. No, I've uh, totally I thought right. I was being witty. And <laughs> right now. I guess. Not. Oh no, you are. You are. You know. Uh, but uh, you know, I just, I just. No. I think it's probably just so much more random than that. I, I just don't think there's a lot of like, uh, you know, you look at like the history of this planet, and there's been like a number of periods where, you know, just you know, like that one we were just talking about, where an asteroid hits or. Or some yeah. like random event happens. There's yeah. there's been a couple of times where, um, you know, like ninety percent of the species on planet Earth were completely destroyed by some random event, you know, and that that's happened like a couple of times, right? Like so, yeah. it just seems to me that um, uh, it it's very random, you know. So I, but but no, I, I definitely think. Um, you know, to go back to your earlier point about like uh, the peaches and the the apples and stuff like that, one of the points that I think she she makes a couple of times in the book, which just can't, I think can't be stressed enough, it, it's that um, if we're going to sort of survive into the future and and solve our food problems, yeah, we have to we have to sort of get rid of this idea that, you know, somehow there's going to be like a silver bullet that will save us or that we can sort of go back to the old ways or something like that. Actually, like in every field, whether it's yeah. like ra- raising salmon or raising, we're just going to have to be constantly innovating yeah. all the time. Yeah. So we're going to because need, so I think, yeah, I think all the with, time. That's right. So I think one of the things that she does that comes out very loud and clear is that we need to keep feeding people. There's going to continue to be more people, right? Um, and so farms will continue uh, to uh, have to exist to make the bulk of our of our calories in wheat and, and corn, uh, although they should be done much more uh, regeneratively and responsibly. That's a totally different you know, question because that, you know, def- directly impacts the whole the whole discussion we're having about climate change, but she also talks about like a lot of indoor uh, vertical gardening uh, and local gardens, you know, indoor gardening uh, uh, locally. So, you know, especially stuff like produce, like lettuces and all these 
leafy greens and all this. Very easy to grow inside, you know, almost in, a, in, in containers, right? And, and when I say contain, like shipping containers or in like old warehouses with some lights. Um, very efficient. It's actually profitable. So, we, you know, we're going to need to ramp up on that kind of stuff. Um, you know, the, 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 do something with fish farms, figure out ways to grow meat in a lab, um, you know, find ways to, I think she also talks about, you know, making food from non-foods, you know, like uh, algae and all kinds of like other organic uh, uh, substances that we <clears throat> currently are not eating, but that we could be eating if they're sort of transformed or kind of prepared in a way. Um, so I think, I think what she's, uh, the, the message in the book is mostly, uh, that there's, there is, there are a lot of challenges, um, but there's also a lot of different solutions out there and, and there's no one solution. You know, we need better, bigger farms. We need more local, uh, gardens. We need indoor vertical gardening. We need, um, you need, we need to grow meat in labs. We need to make uh, Soylent. We need to print, you know, our bars, right? And that whole thing about, you know, printing, printing your food is straight from nutrients, right? Yeah, we're going to need to do all these things. Yeah, I mean, that's you, what you just mentioned—that that part uh, where she, you know, like like a lot of our listeners, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this right now, uh, I buy probably four or five. Um, of those containers with of like mixed baby greens, uh, you know, where it'll have like arugula, kale, uh, bok choy, watercress, mizuna. Like it'll have like, it'll be like a, a mixed spring greens, like the little lettuces and stuff like that. I, I've been buying those, you know, soon after they came out, they're, you know, pretty cheap. They're like fresh. They're absolutely delicious. And um, I had no idea until reading this book that those things are all grown inside these indoor warehouses. Yeah, where they're grown lot. like like just totally, totally wild. It was like what was it, hardwood? Uh, and they've they've spread all over the world, and they like they produce like you know seventy five tons of leafy greens a month. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Just, there's a lot of yeah. Leafy, leafy greens are actually, you know. So being somebody that, um, you know, I'm an avid gardener, so um, I can tell you that leafy greens are probably the easiest thing to grow, um, and it just needs like a good uh, source of light. Doesn't need. It doesn't grow very big. It doesn't need tons of nutrients. Um, you know, you can grow it in soil, you can grow it in no soil, you can, you know, uh, they have, you know, they have these indoor towers that are just where they have tons of, uh, leafy greens that, uh, are not even in soil. They just kind of like drip water that's uh, filled with nutrients on the roots, you know? And, um, so leafy greens are probably, you know, one of the easiest things to grow in this way. And I think a lot of companies are doing that. I think Montreal isn't there a company called Leafa Farms or something that does. I think does so. It. I think it's, yeah. it's it's just it's very interesting because it's all happening. I, I had no idea. And like they say, you know, 
but you, there's lots of things that you can't grow that way, or at least yeah, not yeah. yet. You can't grow potatoes, you know, potatoes and carrots, and you, know, you have like, like a lot of the staples, and or, you know, you can't grow corn. Like there's there's a whole pile of things you can't. So that's why leafy. There's a, there's a lot of different types of foods that can be grown this way, and we need to do that, right? As a mm-hmm. You know, what do you think about like, I, I know, you know, I, I know you're, you're planning a large, uh, a much bigger garden of yeah. your own, right? Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and I'm wondering, what do you think about, obviously, this isn't like a permanent solution. But what do you about what do you think about this new thing that's that's been happening in a number of big cities, uh, where people in a city like, like me, um, make make a, an agreement with a with a farmer and they say like you know i will pay you a certain amount of money per year or per month and then you give me you know in the same way that you would like uh, buy shares in a in a company yeah. and if, if the company has a good year well then you get good dividends if they yeah, uh, if they have a bad year. Well, you don't you don't get anything, or you get less. Uh, you know, whatever. But yeah, where they sort of people invest in yeah. a, a local farmer, and then the farmer brings them stuff as it is. Yeah, as it so, goes directly. What do you think about that? As like, so do you think that's basically just more hippie romanticism, or you know, um, again. I so I see it from a lot of different perspectives. Okay, so from the perspective, because uh, I actually have a few friends that have had these. Uh, we, in, I guess here in Quebec we call them uh, the penny, the penny mm-hmm. fere. You know, like yeah. So yeah. Um, and um, and one of the challenges uh, for, that I've heard from people is that there's not a lot of diversity. So if you're if you're a household. And again, you know, food, this is a totally different discussion, but the kind of food that people eat uh, in a household, you know, if you have like, if you're two adults and kids and everything and everyone has like different legs, it's not, it's not everybody that wants to have, let's say, kale every day for like two months practically, right? So, um, you know, when it's kale season, right, at the beginning of the year or, you know, the end of the year or whenever it is, if you're, if you've signed on to, uh, give X amount of money to a, um, um, you know, this this market guard because it's usually smaller market guards that do this. It's not really farmers. I don't think farmers do this per se. You know, guys that have this is smaller market gardens. You know, they'll go to individuals and they'll say, I don't even know the amount. They'll say for X dollars, you know, uh, every time I have yield, I'll bring you a basket every week. But then if every week you're getting lettuce and kale. Uh, at one point, you're like, okay, it's been like three weeks. I'm getting lettuce and kale. I don't want this anymore. You know, um, so this is a challenge. Um, is the idea good? I think the idea is pretty good. Um, I, again, it comes to diversity. I guess it depends. You know, again, smaller uh, market gardens. You know, I don't really know many of them around here, but it's not an extreme diversity, right? So you don't have uh, typically a, a, a market garden that will grow like a bit of everything. They'll be able to give you carrots in, in May here in Quebec, right? Mm-hmm. You, want some car- you have, want carrots, well, you have to wait till the end of the year, right? Or till like mid-season at least, you know, end of July or something. Uh, you want potatoes, well, you're not going to get potatoes in June, right? 
unless you get some earlies and you know maybe you'll have some but but if you get you want to have start having some variety then this small garden needs to have a lot of variety and well then if it has a lot of variety and has a lot of customers well it's not really a small garden anymore right so it's mm-hmm. kind of this um i love the idea i think it's great i'll be honest now that i, I i've actually talked to a couple of my friends about the little plot that I'll have, which will be close to, it's not, it's not, you know, it's not a farm or anything. I'm just going to have about 1500 square feet of, you know, um, of garden space, but I'm going to have like a lot of stuff. So um, I've had some friends tell me, Oh, you know, if you have extra, you know, we'll pay for the, you know, we'll give you some money and we'll pay for the pannier, you know, of whatever you have, whatever. Yeah, I'm, you know. I'm one of the, I'm one of those friends. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've had, I, I've actually had about half a dozen, People, I'm actually, to be honest, every single person I've talked to about this has said, oh, yeah, I'll, you know, uh, I'd take what you have whenever it's ready. Like, you know, if you don't have anything one week, great. If you do another, and, and this is the other problem is you can't, I guess as a household, you know, you can't necessarily rely on a local, local garden to sort of feed you, you know, all, all year, right? It's kind of, uh, okay, well, this week you have this, this, this. The next week you got something different. So, and if you want to, you know, you need to be a household that's very creative in, in cooking and using different ingredients, so I guess, week or month after month. Um, you know, because this week you may have some radishes. Next week you may have peppers. The week after you may have tomatoes. Uh, you may not have lettuce. You know, the week after that you may, you know what I mean? So, yeah. so I, I'm looking at it from a standpoint of, let's say, our household here, okay? Even though I grow, I have, I literally have 150 different uh, varieties of stuff, okay, of seed. Um, but the, the majority of the household here eats maybe like seven different things, right? <laughs> so, yeah. So, uh, you know, no, no comment necessarily on the household, but what I'm trying to say is that um, if I want, if I want to, as you know, somebody in this house to continue feeding uh, my family, I can't actually feed them uh, all the different stuff that comes out of my garden because they don't eat all that stuff. I eat all that stuff, but they don't. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, so my challenge would be even here locally in my own household is I can't even necessarily, you know, um, grow things that. Every single week, everyone here would eat. Anyways, whatever. That's kind of a side note. I'm just, I don't know. I'm kind of rambling. No, no, I know. I think that's actually, you know, Jean-Jacques Rousseau at the beginning of uh, Emile, um, he has has this whole kind of rant against like, you know, people. And he basically means modern people. And and it's funny because like the stuff that he says, he's writing this in like, I don't know, 1762. But the stuff that he says is so much more true now than it was back then but he says um you know the the problem with us is like we just want everything when it's out of season yeah and and like we don't want to like wait for when things are actually like uh ready right we want to just like no i want it now like i don't want to wait right and he he says like it's very interesting because like you know, in order, you know, maybe like part of the um, solution to this uh, problem is we would we would a- actually have to like become a lot more okay with like having things 
like when they are, uh, yeah, when when they're ready, right? And not like rather than, um, yeah. And I, I mean, that's that's a big big problem, yeah. <laughs> you know, because we we're very much like kind of disconnected from these the natural uh, rhythms, you know that. Uh, yeah. So here, here's the how he found it. He says, um, um, "Everything leaves the hand of the author of all things perfect, um, but degenerates in the hands of men. Man obliges one soil to nourish the productions of another, one tree to bear the fruits of another. He mingles and confounds climates, elements, seasons. He mutilates his dog, his horse, his slave." He overturns everything, disfigures everything. He loves deformity, monsters. He desires that nothing should be as nature made it, not even man himself. To please him, man must be broken in like a horse. Man must be adapted to man's own fashion, like a tree in his garden. Uh, And he he goes on. He says basically like, you know, berries and fruits are so much more delicious and special if you just have them when they're in season. And like, why do we need to have them all year round? Like, why do you need to have like fresh flowers all year round? Like he says, like spring flowers are so much nicer if you just see them in the spring, because then they're special. And he's like, you know, if it was Christmas every day of the year, Christmas would suck. Like why? Like why? You know why do we need to have everything like on demand immediately when we want it? And uh, and so his, I mean, he he argues, and he's sort of you know, one of the foundational figures of Romanticism, which is basically what created the hippies and the Back to the Land movement and all the stuff that we grew up with. Uh, yeah, but, but he basically says, you know, getting getting back to nature. And getting back to like a more sane way of living is not just going to involve um, that, that we have to, it's not just about like getting the right food, like consumers have to change their tastes as well. Like yeah. You have to, you have to be willing to eat all of the 150 things that Alex grows. Yeah. yeah you can't, you it. can't just, you can't just eat seven things, right? Like, yeah. Yeah, you can't just wait for the cucumbers in the, in August, you know. You got to yeah. eat the the lettuce in the you got to eat the lettuce in May and the, <laughs> you know, that's uh but yeah. uh, but but this is you know food is this weird thing where um it, it's actually quite funny because I I grew up in a household with my parents where um we would basically make like rock soup, you know, the whole expression rock soup, you know, like, sure, just, sure. Yeah. You know, whatever, whatever you have just, you know, or bone or whatever the expression is, you just, whatever is in the refrigerator. Okay. Um, oh, we have this leftover or we bought this. So we will make food with that. Right. Mm-hmm. And we'll end up, we, we end up making a meal. And so I, I grew up eating everything, weird combinations of things, um, you know, and um and i kind of as an adult i'm i'm kind of i'm good with anything and everything okay i love flavor i love different different stuff but um i live with a, a, a you know kathy 
and, and the family that, you know, is, is kind of different than me. Right. Kathy mm-hmm. is very, uh, she's very busy. You know, she has a very busy life. And so she, you know, she doesn't want to think too much about, about cooking. Um, you know, there's, everyone has different, you know, one person likes three different things. Another one likes four different things. There's not a lot of overlap and the overlap that, that does is like, it's sort of like, well, okay, I'll make this right. Uh, more often. So like every Tuesday, it's like taco Tuesdays and every like Wednesday mm-hmm. uh, mom's fried chicken. And, and, and so she ends up getting into this, um, uh, uh, this routine, okay, where everybody's happy. She doesn't have to think uh, too much. She doesn't have to, you know, say, oh, oh, you're not going to eat this. Oh, what? So once you kind of know what people will eat, it kind of makes life easy, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, to, to change that, so once this is already set, okay, once you kind of have a society or you have a family, or you have what have you, that is is quite set, and they want to have, like you were saying before, you know, you want to eat your raspberries every single day, you want to eat your chicken, you know, three times a week, and you want to eat your tacos every Tuesday. Well, in the tacos, you know, you need to have your, you need your lettuce, and you need your sour cream, and if there's no sour cream, well, you need to go buy it, because that's, you know, and if you don't have any of the, you know, tomato sauce, you need to get that. When that's kind of the, the way, which I think is, uh, there's a lot of, lot of, fam- a lot of people, you know, kind of operate this way. Um, you end up, uh, you know, just to tie this all back to the paniers, you end up having a hard time uh, making a, a good, um, a good case for, for these, uh, you know, these paniers. Yeah, there's, I think it's in Michael Pollan's book, uh, The Omnivore's Dilemma. He talks about this and he talks about how like so many of his friends uh, and people that he talks, that he talks to, they say that, Oh, my kid only eats like five things, you know, like chicken fingers, frozen chicken fingers, (laughs) French fries, uh, you know, pizza. They've got like, like five fucking things that they eat. And you go into a restaurant and like the restaurant will offer like those five things on the kid's menu. Cause they know the fuckers eat those five things. Right. Anyway, he has like a really interesting uh, argument for that. And he says, you know, yes, it's true that humans are omnivores. And so they, they can eat tons and tons of stuff. However, he says like one thing that we notice in nature is that um, anytime there's an omnivore, whether it's like a raccoon or, or a human being or like a coyote or anytime you have like an omnivore in a, or a squirrel in a situation, where there's like a plentiful supply of, you know, like one food or, you know, a couple of different foods, they will very quickly specialize and will like only eat those foods if they're plentifully available and they won't touch, they won't touch anything else. And the only time they will try out other foods is um, if they're starving if they're like super hungry and then the stuff they normally eat is not there. Yeah. And so, and he says, actually from an evolutionary standpoint, this makes a great deal of sense because one of the big problems that omnivores have the world over is you, you can eat tons of different stuff, but you don't know what's poisonous. You don't know what is going to make you sick. 
you don't know what. And so um, you have to do this calculus all the time. It's like, how hungry am I? And how potentially dangerous is this, right? Yeah. So if you have, if you have, if an omnivore has a never ending supply of chicken fingers, pizza, French fries, and, you know, whatever, uh, yeah, they'll, they'll naturally specialize because it's safer than trying out new stuff because you, you know that this, I know that this feeds me. I know it doesn't make me sick. So I'm just yeah. going to eat, eat those like, four things forever right um and so but we know better here's the thing we know we know better. we know better, we know better. and you know jordan you know jordan peterson uh, one yeah. of one of uh i i forget what what's book in it, it's in but in one of his books he, he says you know part of being an adult <clears throat> is that you need to make you know uh, decisions and good decisions and move about your life so now that you're an adult you know yeah of course you can drink beer every night you know, because uh, nobody's telling you not to do it. Uh, or you can eat pizza every day, you know, for breakfast, lunch, and supper. But that's not the adult thing to do. <laughs> yeah, I'm, no. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling really judged right now, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you need to take care of judged. Yeah, uh, you need to take command uh, of your life, you know, <laughs> and you need to, like, yeah, be like whatever. Okay. Clean your room, Alex. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think I, I hear what you're saying. I, but the, the point is that there's uh, a friend of yeah. mine, he's a, he's a physicist, he teaches at Dawson. And uh, he, he basically he took Michael Pollan's um, advice very, very clearly. And he was like, oh, that's really interesting. And so he and his girlfriend started doing this. Um, this thing where they fast once a week. They oh, fast. Yeah, I heard that's really good. Yeah, I yeah. They, uh, he he basically he fast. They fast, if I remember correctly, they fast for like a day every week, and then yeah. they live close. They live close to Outwater Market, and so what they go is they plan out this really really amazing meal for Saturday Saturday night. And they go and they, they really put a lot of thought into it. They look up recipes and they, every single Saturday, they try and eat something they've never eaten before, like some strange vegetable or strange like mushroom or some you know, weird thing. And, and he said, you know, it's amazing because it's based on this, this theory that Michael Pollan talks about in The Omnivore's Dilemma, that if you starve yourself, it sort of cues in all these things where you suddenly, uh, he said, like things that normally you find gross suddenly are delicious. And like your, your capacity to taste flavors and to smell subtleties is like just jacked up. Like enhanced. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like crazy enhanced. And like, and then you're, you know, like let's say you never liked mushrooms before and suddenly you're, you're cooking something with like these really strong mushrooms and it's yeah, you've been starving so for good. A day. So of course yeah. you have mushrooms. And it but he said he's been, he's been using fasting. They've been using fasting as a way of like expanding their palate. And he said it's just it's worked really, really well. So now like he said he said, I used to eat he goes, I used to be one of those people that ate like the same five things all the time like you know 95 percent of my calories were from the same couple things and he said now i eat like hundreds of things 
Like I'm actually, I'm actually an omnivore now. Like I eat in a, you know, in a six month period, I will eat like dozens and dozens, dozens of different kinds of grains and vegetables and fruits. And like, if you want to eat dozens and dozens of things, John, just come to my garden this summer. You can, I will. You, you can eat. You can have dozens and dozens of yeah. things. Yeah, yeah. it's just uh, expanding. You know, getting yeah, yourself no, think, getting yourself out of the rut. I think that's a great idea. Like, and and that that sounds like a very nice modern couple thing to do. I would love. You know, um, I'm actually a bit envious. I'd love to be able to do something like that. I just <laughs> you know, the thought of fasting for a day is a. Uh, very hard for me. I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but, but you know, it, it, the thing is, I've heard, um, I have never, ever heard of anything negative about fasting. And uh, the fasting for a day thing, I've known a number of people uh, who've done it. And we actually have um, uh, a, a sort of like a second removed cousin in our family that was in show business. Anyway, so he's, and he did that his whole life. He's in his 80s now. And um, he he apparently did that. He's been doing that since like the '60s. And you know, he's like in his he's in his 80s. He's super vibrant, and he says like part of his <clears throat> you know he's he's always kept in, in good shape. He's always been very healthy, and part of his success, he says, always been he fasts every Friday. So he's, and he's been wow. doing that his entire life. Yeah, yeah. It's um, you know, and fasting is good. Like that, the whole the mechanism you know, what it does in your body is, is, um, is actually very good, right? Cause it's sort of your body all of a sudden starts in addition to not having to digest food, it kind of diverts its energy uh, to like to repairing stuff, repairing stuff. Cause most of the time when you're eating every, you know, I think that there's probably a lot more theory behind it than what I'm going to say, but I think part of the whole fasting, um, theory is that you know your your body is this sort of self-repairing uh organism that uh, that only has like a sort of a finite amount of energy and uh, and if you're constantly feeding it right then then it's just constantly using a lot of its uh, its energy to like break down food but that same energy if you're not feeding it at one point you're not really starving right because there's still a lot inside of you there's still a lot of like you know there's way there's lots of energy in our bodies, man. We live in Canada. Like, come on. <laughs> but but uh, but the idea is if if it doesn't need to like use any energy to break down food, well then it just starts to use this energy to do what it's you know kind of set out to do, which is kind of fix things, right? Yeah. No, I've I've heard I've heard the same thing from a lot of. Uh, food scientists that um, it's sort of like if you're the analogy that one of them uh, told me was they said it's kind of like you know if you're super super busy all the time uh, you basically just you, you you're always putting out fires so you, you do the dishes you do the laundry you do the basic stuff in your house because you you know you got to maintain that stuff but Maybe there's bigger projects, you know, like cleaning out the closets or repairing the windows <laughs> or something like that. You just, you just, you never get around to it because you're so kind of constantly busy. Uh, and then gradually those problems can develop uh, to becoming very serious problems where your roof is caving in on you or your 
foundation is crumbling, right? So they said the body is similar. Like if you're just always eating and all your body is spending such a huge amount of energy, just kind of processing all of that food and, and dealing with, you know, all of that, that you don't have a lot of energy left over for those side projects. And, um, and if it, whereas if you, if you take a break from eating from time to time, uh, your body can sort of, you know, go and clean out those closets, and, you know, do those like side projects, you know? So what you're trying to say is that if the same procrastination on uh, home rentals <laughs> was applied to eating, um, we'd be in better shape. So yeah. pretty much, pretty much. <laughs> well, I think a, yeah. a really good, a really good place to end this discussion is with uh, uh, the that wonderful quotation from George Orwell's uh, "The Road to Wigan Pier." she has at the end of the book where she says um, uh, a human being is primarily a bag for putting food into the other functions and faculties may be, may be more godlike, but in point of time, they come afterwards, a man dies and is buried and all his words and actions are forgotten. But the food he has eaten lives after him in the sound or rotten bones of his children. I think it could be plausibly argued that changes of diet are more important than changes of dynasty or even of religion. Yet it is curious how seldom the all-importance of food is recognized. And so we, we spend tons of time talking about, oh, liberals, conservatives. Or, yeah, <laughs> we spend a like, huge amount of time talking about all these like, you know, things that we think, like, politics, religion, and all this stuff that's like, super, super important. And you know, we spend... Uh, very little time thinking about uh, food and how we grow our food and you know what we're yeah. eating. When in fact, this is like fucking super super important, right? It's like yeah. you know, it's funny because the, the this quote uh, kind of made me think um, when I was uh, just before the the call. Um, I was thinking to myself. Just you know, thinking about food and you know agriculture and eating and 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 then I was saying to myself, well, you know, here's the funny thing: we have all these plans with humanity and all these great technologies, and you know, we're going places and we're doing things and we're overthrowing governments and we're having elections and you know, and and at the end of the day, humanity wants to continue down its current path of increased standard of living, like if we want to keep having better and better lives, and we want to keep growing, the only key is through food. Mm -hmm. That's it. Like everything, it all, like, you know, it's all this other stuff is just, you know, it's just stuff. Like food is what's going to keep us alive. Yeah. Well, that is a a wonderful place to end. Thank you so much for, uh, coming on the podcast again uh we definitely have to do this again many many times in the future thanks for uh, having me but yeah right. it was fun and, uh i can't wait to eat your stuff yeah. from your garden this summer <laughs> <laughs> all right john bye yeah. alex bye bye, bye. <laughs>